Dead Souls, Part 1, Chapter 7, Section 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. Translated by D.J. Hogarth. Part 1, Chapter 7, Section 2. Approaching the first desk which he happened to encounter, Chichikov inquired of the two young officials who were seated at it whether they would kindly tell him where business relating to serf indenture was transacted. "'Of what nature precisely is your business?' countered one of the youthful officials as he turned himself round. "'I desire to make an application.' "'In connection with the purchase?' "'Yes.' But as I say, I should like first to know where I can find the desk devoted to such business. Is it here or elsewhere? You must state what it is you have bought and for how much. Then we shall be happy to give you the information. Chichikov perceived that the official's motive was merely one of curiosity. As often happens when young Chinovnik desire to cut a more important and imposing figure than is rightfully theirs. Look here, young sirs, he said. I know for a fact that all serf business, no matter to what value, is transacted at one desk alone. Consequently, I again request you to direct me to that desk. Of course, if you do not know your business, I can easily ask someone else. To this, the Chinovniks made no reply beyond pointing towards a corner of the room where an elderly man appeared to be engaged in sorting some papers. Accordingly, Chichikov and Manilov threaded their way in his direction through the desks, whereupon the elderly man became violently busy. "'Would you mind telling me,' said Chichikov, bowing, "'whether this is the desk for serf affairs?' The elderly man raised his eyes and said stiffly, "'This is not the desk for serf affairs.' "'Where is it, then?' "'In the serf department.' "'And where might the serf department be?' "'In charge of Ivan Antonovich.' "'And where is Ivan Antonovich?' The elderly man pointed to another corner of the room, whither Chichikov and Manilov next directed their steps. As they advanced, Ivan Antonovich cast an eye backwards and viewed them askance. Then, with renewed ardor, he resumed his work of writing. "'Would you mind telling me,' said Chichikov, bowing, "'whether this is the desk for serf affairs?' It appeared as though Ivan Antonovich had not heard, so completely did he bury himself in his papers and return no reply." Instantly it became plain that he was at least of an age of discretion, and not one of your jejune chatterboxes and harem scarums. For, although his hair was still thick and black, he had long ago passed his fortieth year. His whole face tended towards the nose. It was what, in common parlance, is known as a pitcher-mug. "'Would you mind telling me,' repeated Chichikov, "'whether this is the desk for serf affairs?' "'That it is.' said Ivan Antonovich, again lowering his jug-shaped jowl and resuming his writing. Then I should like to transact the following business. From various landowners in this canton I have purchased a number of peasants for transfer. Here is the purchase list, and it needs but to be registered. Have you also the vendors here? Some of them. And from the rest I have obtained powers of attorney. And have you your statement of application? Yes. I desire, indeed it is necessary for me to do so, to hasten matters a little. Could the affair, therefore, be carried out through to-day? To-day? Oh, dear no, said Ivan Antonovich. 
Before that can be done, you must furnish me with further proofs that no impediments exist. Then, to expedite matters, let me say that Ivan Grigorievich, the president of the council, is a very intimate friend of mine, possibly, said Ivan Antonovich without enthusiasm. But Ivan Grigorievich alone will not do. It is customary to have others as well. Yes, but the absence of others will not altogether invalidate the transaction. I too have been in the service and know how things can be done. You had better go and see Ivan Grigorievich, said Ivan Antonovich more mildly. Should he give you an order addressed to whom it may concern, we shall soon be able to settle the matter. Upon that Chichikov pulled from his pocket a paper, and laid it before Ivan Antonovich. At once the latter covered it with a book. Chichikov again attempted to show it to him, but with a movement of his head Ivan Antonovich signified that it was unnecessary. A clerk, he added, will now conduct you to Ivan Grigorievich's room. Upon that, one of the toilers in the service of Themis, a zealot who offered her such heartfelt sacrifices that his coat had burst at the elbows and lacked a lining, escorted our friends, even as Virgil had once escorted Dante, to the apartment of the presence. In this sanctum were some massive armchairs, a table laden with two or three fat books, and a large looking-glass. Lastly, in, apparently, sun-like isolation, there was seated at the table the President. On arriving at the door of the apartment, our modern Virgil seemed to have become so overwhelmed with awe that, without daring even to intrude a foot, he turned back, and, in doing so, once more exhibited a back as shiny as a mat and, having adhering to it, in one spot, a chicken's feather. As soon as the two friends had entered the hall of the presence, they perceived that the president was not alone, but, on the contrary, had seated by his side Sobakevich, whose form had hitherto been concealed by the intervening mirror. The newcomer's entry evoked sundry exclamations, and the pushing back of a pair of government chairs as the voluminous-sleeved Sobakevich rose into view from behind the looking-glass. Chichikov the President received with an embrace, and for a while the Hall of the Presence resounded with osculatory salutations, as mutually the pair inquired after one another's health. It seemed that both had lately had a touch of that pain under the waistband which comes from a sedentary life. Also, it seemed that the President had just been conversing with Sobakevich on the subject of sales of souls, since he now proceeded to congratulate Chichikov on the same, a proceeding which rather embarrassed our hero, seeing that Manilov and Sobakevich, two of the vendors, and persons with whom he had bargained in the strictest privacy, were now confronting one another direct. However, Chichikov duly thanked the President, and then, turning to Sobakevich, inquired after his health. "'Thank God I have nothing to complain of,' replied Sobakevich, which was true enough, seeing that a piece of iron would have caught a cold and taken to sneezing sooner than would that uncouthly fashioned landowner. "'Ah, yes, you have always had good health, have you not?' put in the President. "'Your late father was equally strong.' "'Yes, he even went out bear-hunting alone,' replied Sobakevich. "'I think that you too could worse a bear if you were to try a tussle with him,' rejoined the President." "'Oh, no,' said Sobakevich. "'My father was a stronger man than I am.' Then, with a sigh, the speaker added, "'But nowadays there are no such men as he. "'What is even a life like mine worth? 
"'Then you do not have a comfortable time of it?' exclaimed the President. "'No, far from it,' rejoined Sobakevitch, shaking his head. "'Judge for yourself, Ivan Grigorievich. I am fifty years old, yet never in my life had been ill, except for an occasional carbuncle or boil. That is not a good sign. Sooner or later I shall have to pay for it.' And he relapsed into melancholy. "'Just listen to the fellow.' was Chichikov's and the President's joint inward comment. What on earth has he to complain of? I have a letter for you, Ivan Grigorievich, went on Chichikov aloud, as he produced from his pocket Plushkin's epistle. From whom? inquired the President. Having broken the seal, he exclaimed, Why, it is from Plushkin! To think that he is still alive! What a strange world it is! He used to be such a nice fellow, and now... And now he is a cur concluded Sobakevitch, as well as a miser who starves his serfs to death. "'Allow me a moment,' said the President, and then he read the letter through. When he had finished, he added, "'Yes, I am quite ready to act as Plushkin's attorney.' "'When do you wish to purchase deeds to be registered, Monsieur Chichikov, now or later?' "'Now, if you please,' replied Chichikov. "'Indeed, I beg that, if possible, the affair may be concluded to-day.' since to-morrow I wish to leave the town. I have brought with me both the forms of indenture and my statement of application. Very well. Nevertheless, we cannot let you depart so soon. The indenture shall be completed to-day, but you must continue your sojourn in our midst. I will issue the necessary orders at once. So saying, he opened the door into the general office, where the clerks looked like a swarm of bees around a honeycomb, if I may liken affairs of government to such an article. "'Is Ivan Antonovitch here?' asked the President. "'Yes,' replied a voice from within. "'Then send him here.' Upon that, the pitcher-faced Ivan Antonovitch made his appearance in the doorway and bowed. "'Take these indentures, Ivan Antonovitch,' said the President, "'and see that they—' "'But first I would ask you to remember,' put in Sobakevitch, "'that witnesses ought to be in attendance, "'not less than two on behalf of either party. "'Let us therefore send for the public prosecutor.' who has little to do, and has even that little done for him by his chief clerk, Zolotucha. The inspector of the medical department is also a man of leisure and likely to be at home, if he has not gone out to a card party. Others also there are all the men who cumber the ground for nothing. Quite so, quite so, agreed the president, and at once dispatched a clerk to fetch the persons named. Also, requested Chichikov, I should be glad if you would send for the accredited representative of a certain lady landowner with whom I have done business. He is the son of a father Cyril, and a clerk in your offices. Certainly we shall call him here, replied the President. Everything shall be done to meet your convenience, and I forbid you to present any of our officials with a gratuity. That is a special request on my part. No friend of mine ever pays a copper. With that, he gave Ivan Antonovitch the necessary instructions and though they scarcely seemed to meet with that functionary's approval, upon the President the purchased deeds had evidently procured an excellent impression, more especially since the moment when he had perceived the sum total to amount to nearly a hundred thousand rubles. For a moment or two, he gazed into Chichikov's eyes with an expression of profound satisfaction. Then he said, Well done, Paul Ivanovitch. You have indeed made a nice haul. That is so, replied Chichikov. Excellent business, yes, excellent business. I, too, conceived that I could not well have done better. 
the truth is that never until a man has driven home the piles of his life structure upon the lasting bottom instead of upon the wayward chimeras of youth will his aims in life assume a definite end and that said chichikov went on to deliver himself a very telling indictment of liberalism and our modern young men yet in his words there seemed to lurk a certain lack of conviction somehow he seemed secretly to be saying to himself my good sir you are talking the most absolute rubbish and nothing but rubbish nor did he even throw a glance at sobakevitch and manilov it was as though he were uncertain what he might not encounter in their expression yet he need not have been afraid never once did sobakevitch's face move a muscle and as for manilov he was too much under the spell of chichikov's eloquence to do aught beyond nod his approval at intervals and strike the kind of attitude which is assumed by lovers of music when a lady singer has in rivalry of an accompanying violin produced a note whereof the shrillness would exceed even the capacity of a bird's throstle but why not tell ivan grigorievitch precisely what you have bought inquired sobakevitch of chichikov and why ivan grigorievitch do you not ask monsieur chichikov precisely what his purchases have consisted of what a splendid lot of serfs to be sure i myself have sold him my wheelwright michiev what you have sold him michiev exclaimed the president i know the man well he is a splendid craftsman and on one occasion made me a droshki a sort of low four-wheeled carriage only only well lately didn't you tell me that he is dead that michiev is dead re-echoed sobakevitch coming perilously near to laughing oh dear no that was his brother Michiev himself is very much alive, and in even better health than he used to be. Any day he could knock you up a britchka such as you could not procure even in Moscow. However, he is now bound to work for only one master. Indeed, a splendid craftsman, repeated the president. My only wonder is that you can have brought yourself to part with him. Then think you that Michiev is the only serf with whom I have parted? Nay, for I have parted also with Probka Stepan, my carpenter, with Melushkin, my bricklayer, and with Telyatnikov, my bootmaker. Yes, the whole lot I have sold. And to the president's inquiry why he had so acted, seeing that the serfs named were all skilled workers and indispensable to a household, Sobakevitch replied that a mere whim had led him to do so, and thus the sale had owned its origin to a piece of folly. Then he hung his head as though already repenting of his rash act, and added, although a man of gray hairs... I have not yet learned wisdom. But, inquired the president further, how comes it about, Paul Ivanovitch, that you have purchased peasants apart from land? Is it for transferment elsewhere that you need them? Yes. Very well, then. That is quite another matter. To what province of the country? To the province of Kherson. Indeed. That region contains some splendid land, said the president, whereupon he proceeded to expatiate on the fertility of the Kherson pastures. "'And have you much land there?' he continued. "'Yes, quite sufficient to accommodate the serfs whom I have purchased. "'And is there a river on the estate, or a lake?' "'Both.' After this reply, Chichikov involuntarily threw a glance at Sobakevitch, and though the landowner's face was as motionless as ever, the other seemed to detect in it, "'You liar! Don't tell me that you own both a river and a lake, as well as the land which you say you do.' Whilst the foregoing conversation had been in progress, 
various witnesses had been arriving on the scene. They consisted of the constantly blinking public prosecutor, the inspector of the medical department, and others, all, to quote Sobakevich, men who cumbered the ground for nothing. With some of them, however, Chichikov was altogether unacquainted, since certain substitutes and supernumeraries had to be pressed into the service from among the ranks of the subordinate staff. There also arrived, in answer to the summons, not only the son of Father Cyril before mentioned, but also Father Cyril himself. Each witness appended to his signature a full list of his dignities and qualifications. One man in printed characters, another in flowing hand, a third in topsy-turvy characters of a kind never before seen in the Russian alphabet, and so forth. Meanwhile, our friend Ivan Antonovich comported himself with not a little address, and after the indentures had been signed, docketed, and registered, Chichikov found himself called upon to pay only the merest trifle in the way of government percentages and fees for publishing the transaction in the official gazette. The reason of this was that the President had given orders that only half the usual charges were to be exacted from the present purchaser, the remaining half being somehow debted to the account of another applicant for serf registration. And now, said Ivan Grigorievich, when all was completed, we need only to wet the bargain. For that, too, I am ready, said Chichikov. Do you but name the hour. If, in return for your most agreeable company, I were not to set a few champagne corks flying, I should indeed be in default. But we are not going to let you charge yourself for anything whatsoever. We must provide the champagne, for you are our guest, and it is for us, it is our duty, it is our bounden obligation, to entertain you. Look here, gentlemen, let us adjourn to the house of the chief of police. He is the magician who needs but to wink when passing a fishmonger's or a wine merchant's. Not only shall we fare well at his place, but also we shall get a game of whist. To this proposal, no one had any objections to offer, for the merest mention of the fish shop aroused the witness's appetite. Consequently, the ceremony being over, there was a general reaching for hats and caps. As the party were passing through the general office, Ivan Antonovich whispered in Chichikov's ear, with the courteous inclination of his jug-shaped physiognomy. You have given a hundred thousand roubles for the serfs, but have paid me only a trifle for my trouble. Yes, replied Chichikov with a similar whisper. But what sort of serfs do you suppose them to be? They are a poor useless lot, and not worth even half the purchase money. This gave Ivan Antonovich to understand that the visitor was a man of strong character, a man from whom nothing more was to be expected. "'Why have you gone and purchased souls from Plushkin?' whispered Sobakevich in Chichikov's other ear. "'Why did you go and add the woman Voroboy to your list?' retorted Chichikov. "'Voroboy? Who is Voroboy? The woman Elizabeth Voroboy. Elizabeth, not Elizabetta.' "'I added no such name,' replied Sobakevich, and straightway joined the other guests. At length the party arrived at the residence of the chief of police. The latter proved indeed a man of spells, for no sooner had he learnt what was afoot than he summoned a brisk young constable, whispered in his ear, adding laconically, You understand, do you not? And brought it about that, during the time that the guests were cutting for partners at whist in an adjoining room, the dining-table became laden with sturgeon, caviar, salmon, herrings, cheese, smoked tongue, 
fresh roe, and a potted variety of the same, all procured from the local fish market, and reinforced with additions from the host's own kitchen. The fact was that the worthy chief of police filled the office of a sort of father and general benefactor to the town, and that he moved among the citizens as though they constituted a part and parcel of his own family, and watched over their shops and markets as though those establishments were merely his own private larder. Indeed, it would be difficult to say, so thoroughly did he perform his duties in this respect, whether the post most fitted him, or he the post. Matters were also so arranged that though his income more than doubled that of his predecessors, he had never lost the affection of his fellow townsmen. In particular did the tradesmen love him, since he was never above standing godfather to their children, or dining at their tables. True, he had differences of opinion with them, and serious differences at that, but always these were skillfully adjusted by his slapping the offended ones jovially on the shoulder, drinking a glass of tea with them, promising to call at their houses and play a game of chess, asking after their belongings, and, should he learn that a child of theirs was ill, prescribing the proper medicine. In short, he bore the reputation of being a very good fellow. On perceiving the feast to be ready, the host proposed that his guests should finish their whist after luncheon, whereupon all proceeded to the room whence for some time past an agreeable odor had been tickling the nostrils of those present, and towards the door of which Sobakevitch in particular had been glancing since the moment when he had caught sight of a huge sturgeon reposing on the sideboard. After a glassful of warm, olive-colored vodka apiece, vodka of the tent to be seen only in the species of Siberian stone whereof seals are cut, the company applied themselves to knife and fork work, and, in doing so, evinced their several characteristics and tastes. For instance, Sobakevitch, disdaining lesser trifles, tackled the large sturgeon, and, during the time that his fellow guests were eating minor comestibles and drinking and talking, contrived to consume more than a quarter of the whole fish, so that, on the host remembering the creature, and, with fork in hand, leading the way in its direction and saying, What, gentlemen, think you of this striking product of nature? There ensued the discovery that of the said product of nature there remained little beyond the tail, while Sobakevitch, with an air as though at least he had not eaten it, was engaged in plunging his fork into a much more diminutive piece of fish, which happened to be resting on an adjacent platter. After his divorce from the sturgeon, Sobakevitch ate and drank no more, but sat frowning and blinking in an armchair. Apparently the host was not a man who believed in sparing the wine, for the toasts drunk were innumerable. The first toast, as the reader may guess, was quaffed to the health of the new landowner of Kherson, the second to the prosperity of his peasants and their safe transferment, and a third to the beauty of his future wife, a compliment which brought to our hero's lips a flickering smile. Lastly, he received from the company a pressing, as well as an unanimous, invitation to extend his stay in town for at least another fortnight, and, in the meanwhile, to allow a wife to be found for him. "'Quite so,' agreed the President. "'Fight us tooth and nail, though you may. "'We intend to have you married. "'You have happened upon us by chance, "'and you shall have no reason to repent of it. "'We are in earnest on this subject.' "'But why should I fight you tooth and nail?' said Chichikov, smiling. "'Marriage would not come amiss to me, 
were I but provided with a betrothed. Then a betrothed you shall have. Why not? We will do as you wish. Very well, assented Chichikov. Bravo! Bravo! the company shouted. Long live Paul Ivanovitch! Hurrah! Hurrah! And with that, everyone approached to clink glasses with him, and he readily accepted the compliment, and accepted it many times in succession. Indeed, as the hours passed on, the hilarity of the company increased yet further, and more than once the president, a man of great urbanity when thoroughly in his cups, embraced the chief guest of the day, with the heartfelt words, My dearest fellow, my own most precious of friends. Nay, he even started to crack his fingers, to dance around Chichikov's chair, and to sing snatches of a popular song. To the champagne succeeded Hungarian wine, which had the effect of still further heartening and enlivening the company. By this time, everyone had forgotten about whist, and given himself up to shouting and disputing. Every conceivable subject was discussed, including politics and military affairs. And in this connection, guests voiced jejune opinions for the expressions of which they would, at any other time, have soundly spanked their offspring. Chichikov, like the rest, had never before felt so gay, and, imagining himself really and truly to be the landowner of Kherson, spoke of various improvements in agriculture, of the three-field system of tillage. Begin footnote. The system by which, in annual rotation, two-thirds of a given area are cultivated, while the remaining third is left fallow. End footnote. And of the beautific felicity of a union between two kindred souls. Also, he started to recite poetry to Sobakevich, who blinked as he listened, for he greatly desired to go to sleep. At length, the guests of the evening realized that matters had gone far enough, so begged to be given a lift home, and was accommodated with the public prosecutor's Drozhki. Luckily, the driver of the vehicle was a practiced man at his work, for, while driving with one hand, he succeeded in leaning backwards and, with the other, holding Chichikov securely in his place. Arrived at the inn, our hero continued babbling a while about a flaxen-haired damsel with rosy lips and a dimple in her right cheek, about villages of his in Kherson, and about the amount of his capital. Nay, he even issued signoral instructions that Selifan should go and muster the peasants about to be transferred, and make a complete and detailed inventory of them. For a while, Selifan listened in silence. Then he left the room, and instructed Petrushka to help the baron to undress. As it happened, Chichikov's boots had no sooner been removed than he managed to perform the rest of his toilet without assistance, to roll onto the bed, which creaked terribly as he did so, and to sink into sleep in every way worthy of a landowner of Kherson. Meanwhile, Petrushka had taken his master's coat and trousers of bilberry-colored check into the corridor, where, spreading them over a close's horse, he started to flick and to brush them, and to fill the whole corridor with dust. Just as he was about to replace them in his master's room, he happened to glance over the railing of the gallery, and saw Selifan returning from the stable. Glances were exchanged, and in an instant the pair had arrived at an instinctive understanding, an understanding to the effect that the baron was sound asleep, and that, therefore, one might consider one's own pleasure a little. Accordingly, Petrushka proceeded to restore the coat and trousers to their appointed places, and then descended the stairs, whereafter he and Selifan left the house together, 
not a word passed between them as to the object of their expedition. On the contrary, they talked solely of extraneous subjects. Yet their walk did not take them far. It took them only to the other side of the street, and thence into an establishment which immediately confronted the inn. Entering a mean, dirty courtyard covered with glass, they passed thence into a cellar where a number of customers were seated around small wooden tables. What, thereafter, was done by Selifan and Petrushka, God alone knows. At all events, within an hour's time, they issued, arm in arm, in profound silence, yet remained markedly assiduous to one another, and ever ready to help one another around an awkward corner. Still linked together, never once releasing their mutual hold, they spent the next quarter of an hour in attempting to negotiate the stairs of the inn, but at length even that ascent had been mastered, and they proceeded further on their way, halting before his mean little pallet. Petrushka stood a while in his thought. His difficulty was how best to assume a recumbent position. Eventually he laid down on his face, with his legs trailing over the floor, after which Selifan also stretched himself upon the pallet, with his head resting upon Petrushka's stomach, and his mind wholly oblivious to the fact that he ought not have been sleeping there at all, but in the servants' quarters, or in the stable beside his horses. Scarcely a moment had passed before the pair were plunged in slumber, and emitting the most raucous snores, to which their master, next door, responded with snores of a whistling and nasal order. Indeed, before long, every one in the inn had followed their soothing example, and the holstery lay plunged in complete restfulness. Only in the window of the room of the newly arrived lieutenant from Riazan did a light remain burning. Evidently, he was a devotee of boots, for he had purchased four pairs, and was now trying on a fifth, Several times he approached the bed with a view to taking off the boots and retiring to rest, but each time he failed, for the reason that the boots were so alluring in their make that he had no choice but to lift up first one foot and then the other for the purpose of scanning their elegant welts. End of Part 1 Chapter 7